Hello and welcome back to the HSAC podcast. For those of you that don't know, we are the Harvard College Sports Analytics Collective, a group of undergraduate students dedicated to the quantitative and statistical analysis of sports. We break down the numbers and advanced metrics behind all your favorite teams and players, trying to bring useful insights to the game. I am David Arco, a freshman at Harvard College, and today I am lucky to be joined by two great guests and fellow HSAC members, Danny Blumenthal and Julia Blank. On this episode, we will be discussing the first weekend of March Madness, the state of analytics in college basketball, and our predictions for the rest of the tournament. Danny is a past president of HSAC and is currently a senior studying psychology and economics. He's written an abundance of analytical articles, ranging from the NFL draft to fantasy football to analyzing MLB and NBA payroll efficiency. He also publishes HSAC's annual 68 Fast Facts for March Madness, which gives quick facts about all the teams in the tournament. I encourage you to check out that article along with all of Danny's others on our blog at harvardsportsanalysis.org. Julia is a current board member of HSAC and is a freshman studying government in the data science track. Outside of HSAC, she's on the Harvard Crimson Dance team and is also the producer of the first year musical. So it's great you know, to have March Madness back after the tournament was canceled last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The canceling of the 2020 NCAA tournament was kind of the first sign of what was to come in the world of sports and more importantly, in the world abroad. It's hard to remember that that was the very beginning, but you know, here we are a year later with some similar teams, but also many new faces. This year, there was a notable absence of traditional blue bloods like Duke and Kentucky. There was also a lot more early round upsets. In case you forgot all of them, here's a rapid fire list of the big ones. Number 15 seed Or Roberts defeated Ohio State, a 2 seed North Texas, a 13 seed defeated Purdue, a 4, Abilene Christian, a 14 defeated Texas, a 3, Ohio, a 13 defeated Virginia, a 4, Syracuse, an 11 defeated West Virginia, a 3, Oregon, a 7 defeated Iowa, a 2, and of course, Loyola Chicago, an 8 seed defeated Illinois, a number 1 seed. Now, the average seed in the Sweet 16 is 5.88 and that's the highest in NCAA tournament history. After the first week, there are three number one seeds, two number two seeds, and only one number three seed and one number four seed remaining. But at last, we have our Sweet 16 matchups and the teams with the five highest remaining championship probabilities, according to 538, are Gonzaga at 32%, Baylor at 21, Houston at 9, Alabama at 6, and Michigan at 5. Before we dive into anything super substantive, you know, it's a question on everyone's mind when it comes to March Madness. How are your brackets doing after the first week? It's been a tough week. I've survived. I had like a pretty solid like second round in some of the divisions, but not my best. The few big upsets, Ohio State really broke me there. We had a couple of big ones. Illinois, I had Illinois going to the final rounds. That was a real tough one for me, breaking my bracket a little bit. But besides that, we had a couple of good upsets. I had Syracuse in my bracket, so that's been an exciting watch for me. What about you, Danny? My bracket's been doing pretty well so far. All of my final four teams are still in, so hopefully I can keep my progress for next week's games and even beyond. Uh, Like Julia said, I'm a big Syracuse basketball fan, so I definitely had them going through, so excited to see Buddy Beheim and, and the squad keep going strong. Yeah, there's some like good picks. Yeah, being, you know, sports fans, we probably all have multiple brackets. So I have about, you know, six. Our HSAC bracket, that's Harvard wide. I'm in the 80th percentile right now. And I have another one 
with some personal friends. It's about 50 people. I'm actually in first place in that bracket. In the ESPN, I'm like 99th percentile in that. And in both of those brackets, I picked Baylor. So if Baylor ends up winning, I should be in pretty good position. So we'll see if that comes true. But yeah, that leads into kind of my next question, which is, you know, for future years, since this year's already over, we can't, you know, change our brackets. What is an optimal bracket strategy for someone to adopt? You know, should you pick favorites? Should you pick a lot of upsets? Where do you want to go for upsets and go for variants? And what are like the important rounds to get right when it comes to making a bracket? I tend to be pretty traditional with the rankings, especially in football. It's pretty consistent. When you're doing college basketball, I realized this single knockout round strategy, it leans a lot more on the upsets and you really need to not be a quote-unquote ranking addict. And so I've definitely had to and would highly suggest expanding and putting a few key upsets, especially in your round one and two picks. I have a feeling that as we go on, it'll get a little more consistent. That may be a hot take. But I do think in the earlier rounds, it's important to have a few key upsets. And I think that's probably what I'm going to be focusing on in coming years. Building off of what Julia said, in addition to having a couple upsets in the opening rounds, it's also really important to pick your top team. The champion is worth the most points. It makes the biggest difference. And if you don't pick the right champion, chances are you're probably not going to win your pool. So spending some time and making sure you pick the right champion is really crucial. And then big picture, another important thing to consider in terms of the optimal bracket strategy is considering the size of the pool and your goals. If you're in a big pool, chances are that a big portion of people are probably going to pick the number one seed to win it all. And so if you want to win the pool, it's probably worthwhile to choose a team that might have lower odds to win, but no one is thinking of them to win it all. So potentially a two seed or maybe even one of the lower ranked one seeds. Doing so will enable you, if that team ends up winning it all, chances are you won't have to split your pick with anyone else and you'll be ahead of the pack. And then alternatively, if you're more interested in just not finishing at the bottom of your pool, then it's better to opt for the favorites, better to pick probably the number one overall seed. So that way you can try to minimize your variance and end up at least average or slightly above average if that team wins it all. Danny said it you know, perfectly. The strategy depends a lot on what pool you're in. If you're in a pool with 10 or so people, you have a better chance of winning if you pick the overall favorite. If you're in a pool with 100 people, there's chances are you know, a lot of those people are going to pick the favorite. And then when you get to the end, you're also competing against those people. So your bracket has to be just that much more perfect. Whereas you pick you know, maybe a two seed that's not as favorite. If they win, then you're in pretty good shape to win the bracket or finish very near the top. And I actually disagree with something that Julia said. She talked about picking, you know, early round upsets. While that is like a fun thing to do, I think it won't really serve you that well in the long run of your bracket. You know, picking a 14 seed versus a three seed, you know, that'll get you 10 points. But the way the scoring structure works is it's scaled towards the end. So picking that will just kind of look good in the short term. But in the long run, it's more about those like, you know, elite eight, kind of picking a dark horse into the final four. Maybe it's a three versus six matchup a two versus three, a one versus four, try to kind of flip those and see where you can find value. For me, that's what I try to think about for the optimal bracket strategy. But obviously everyone's different. And, you know, it's not just about, you know, winning, it's about having fun too. And there's all different, you know, reasons to pick a bracket and that's what makes it fun at the end of the day. Getting away from bracket strategy, this was a really strange year for sports and especially college basketball with the COVID pandemic. Like I said earlier, there was a notable absence this year of many Blue Blood schools like Duke and Kentucky. 
They were ranked number nine and number 10, respectively, in the AP preseason poll. And for historical, because it's always good to compare things you know, to history, Kentucky has only missed the tournament two times since 1992, and the Blue Devils have only missed the tournament once since 1984. So do you guys think that COVID-19 was the cause of these struggles for these normally dominant Blue Bud schools, or is it just underperformance? I think that it wasn't COVID-19, but there was COVID-19 effects, especially for these kind of, you know, Duke and Kentucky schools is the shortened season. They have a lot of freshmen and for them, they have much steeper learning curve as they get into college basketball. You know, they're playing against other people that are older than them, bigger than them. So they need those beginning of the season out of conference games to kind of gear up for the season. And that was really lacking this year. Kentucky, I looked at their schedule. They lost five of their six first games. And when it's a 25 game season, that's going to kind of put you at a, at a huge handicap. Duke, another COVID effect, they were forced to withdraw from the ACC tournament in the quarterfinals after a positive COVID test. You know, who knows if they would have won the tournament, but they never had the opportunity to prove it. This tournament is interesting in that they're missing these teams, but I think that personally, I'm biased. I think, you know, Duke and Kentucky are better than more than half the schools in the tournament right now, and they would probably do decently well in the tournament if they had gotten in. But I think justifiably so, they are not in the tournament because they don't have the resume to prove it. It's good to kind of get a refresher and have the opportunity for new schools that aren't, you know, traditional powerhouses to crew themselves and make a deep run in the tournament. So yeah, it's kind of a nice refresher that we're seeing some new faces in the tournament. I definitely agree with what you've been saying, David. I think particularly in the case of freshmen, COVID-19 made a difference. The two schools you mentioned, both ranked in the bottom 10 in terms of experience this year, according to barttorvik.com. And the least experienced team remaining in the tournament is UCLA. And they ranked 71st in terms of least experience. So it definitely seems as though the more experienced teams are the ones hanging around in the tournament. However, one thing to think about is that even for these schools that rely on one-and-done freshmen, both Duke and Kentucky had a relatively down year in terms of their recruiting classes. Some of the top recruits are now going to the G League, and even the ones who didn't go to the G League have gone on to other non-traditional powerhouse schools. So Cade Cunningham went to Oklahoma State. Scotty Barnes went to Florida State. Even some of the other top players didn't necessarily go to typical powerhouse schools. So while COVID certainly played a difference and has caused some of the Blue Bloods to struggle, they might have been struggling this year, or at least had a relative down year, even without COVID. Yeah, I know I'm a big Duke fan. In the case of Duke, they, when they were trying to make sort of like a last push, they obviously had a positive COVID diagnosis, which led them to be missing the ACC tournament. But also Jalen Johnson, one of their, basically their star freshmen, decided to leave the team to focus and train on the NBA draft. And so because of that, I think they lost a lot of their manpower and momentum, giving them almost no shot to put a last season push. So because of this, do you guys think that this is an asterisk next to this year's championship or is it totally safe? I mean, I wouldn't say there's an asterisk. I think like as we learned like through the pandemic in general, you have to do the best of what you've been handed and given. And that's exactly what these teams in this sort of year's March Madness have done. Are there certainly different circumstances than usual? Like, yeah, definitely. But if anything, I think these teams should be rewarded for their ability to be so flexible and really take what the season has thrown at them. I think there's so many variables. And so I think rather than saying there's an asterisk to this year's winners, I think you just count this year out as an anomaly for those who didn't make it in the year, but not necessarily count it out and count it against anyone who did really well. 
Yeah, I also agree. I don't think there's an asterisk next to the champion, I would say. You know, other other sports leagues have done their seasons and they've had their champions. And in most cases, we've seen kind of that the favorite has won in most sports. You know, the NBA, the Lakers won. In baseball, the Dodgers won. And in hockey, the Lightning won. In NCAA football, Alabama won. But we're kind of seeing a different effect in the tournament so far with a lot of upsets more than usual. I heard this on the 538s. Hot Dake Town podcast actually yesterday, so credit to them. But they said that 31 out of 47 favorites in the first two rounds won, according to ELO, not according to seed. So according to team strength, not according to seeding. So that's about 66% of the favorites won. And that's the lowest winning percentage for favorites in the first two rounds, dating back to 1985 when the tournament was expanded to 64 teams. So we're kind of seeing the opposite effect in college basketball, where there's a lot more upsets. I'll be curious to see if that keeps continuing on into the rest of the tournament. But yeah, I would not put an asterisk next to the champion, but maybe something like if Gonzaga went undefeated, I would pretty much put an asterisk next to that, given the limited you know, out-of-conference play. But yeah, in terms of the champion, it's totally legitimate. Kind of now getting into more of the weeds about like how college basketball works and you know, it's interesting that it's different from other professional sports and that not all teams get to play each other. That was especially this true, you know, with limited out-of-conference play, you couldn't see, you know, the top schools from different conferences play each other. And, you know, that's important when deciding how to rank and, you know, see different teams for the tournament. For example, Illinois was 24 and seven and Loyola Chicago was 26 and four, yet Illinois got a number one seed and Loyola Chicago got a number eight seed. Obviously, we know that these two schools are in different conferences and have different schedules. Illinois is in the Big Ten, Loyola Chicago is in the Missouri Valley. But how do we quantify these differences between the two teams? A website I really like to use is Ken Palm. It's kind of a very well-known website for college basketball ratings. I call it the Bible for college basketball advanced analytics. Could you give any insight into how these advanced metrics are made? So Ken Palm, big picture in terms of offensive metrics, looking at points scored per 100 possessions, and then on defense, points allowed per 100 possessions. And then adjustments are made based on how far above or below the national average the team ranks on those metrics. No, yeah, I think something they do um, in terms of like comparing teams and really adjusting for these really difficult schedules is that you basically use this additive model in terms of analyzing teams. So it would basically, with these rankings, it would take the overall D1 average of a certain team and see how far above or below the average it is. And from there, they would use how far above the average it is of team A's offense and add that to, let's say, team B's defense. And through there, they would ultimately add these two percentages together. And you could ultimately figure out how high like team A's offensive efficiency is in terms of where they rank in adjusted for schedules. When you're filling out your bracket next year, you I would look to Ken Palm. It's a great resource to kind of see which teams are overinflated with their seed and which teams are underinflated. So that gets into... Another specific interesting thing about college basketball and specifically the March Madness tournament, what makes it so compelling compared to other professional you know, sporting playoffs is obviously the potential for upsets. First of all, it's a much bigger field. There's 68 teams in March Madness compared to you know 16 or so for other professional sports. So you're going to get a lot more Cinderella stories like we're seeing this year with Oral Roberts. And I think most importantly, from like a statistics standpoint, what contributes to these upsets is the fact that it's just one single game. And where in other professional sports, you have a series of five or seven games, the best team is going to win. If you have enough games, they're going to win the majority of the times. 
if Ohio State had played Oral Roberts in a best of seven, Oral Roberts would not advance. I'm sorry. It'd probably be a five games after Oral Roberts wins the first. But I don't know how you guys feel about that. We'll get into that game a little bit more later. But I mean, I'm a tennis player. So I think that makes it you know really interesting, the bracket setup of March Madness. Building a good basketball team is a little bit different from building a team that's good for the tournament format. So I know, Danny, that you recently wrote an article about how important it is to have a balanced team on both the offense and the defense. For both of you guys, what do you think makes a team well-positioned to be successful in the NCAA tournament? As you mentioned, David, we recently looked at teams with balance in terms of whether they were exceptional on one end of the floor, either offense or defense, or whether they were just pretty good on both offense and defense. And we found that teams that were balanced and pretty good on both offense and defense exceeded their seeds expectations more often than teams that were really, really good on one end of the floor, not so good on the other. And I think that's been borne out in this tournament. Ohio State and Iowa were both really imbalanced teams. Iowa ranking number two on offense, but 50th on defense in terms of their Kempom ranking. They got knocked out in the second round in a shootout against Oregon. And Ohio State similarly really struggled on defense, and that was borne out against Oral Roberts. One important factor in terms of overall performance in the tournament is definitely whether teams have balance or not. Yeah, I think something that I've been thinking recently is offense seems to be like having a strong offense seems to be like almost like to me has looked like a non-negotiable factor. I think if you don't have a strong offense, especially in these competitions that are sudden death matchups, to some extent, offense in general has a really important point. If you can't put up the numbers um, against a wide variety of defenses and teams, I don't think you can go very far. But we've also seen, like, I mean, this year we've seen how well defense has done. Loyola Chicago has an incredible defense, and they've done a really great job, and it's allowed them to keep pressing on. They've knocked out number one seed Illinois in round two. But in general, I think historically we've seen that strong offenses are pretty much essential for an ultimate win. I know Duke has had an incredibly high average offense since 2010, and they've had probably some of the most NCAA wins um, since 2010. They've had like 23. From there, I think that you see just the importance of the offense in just getting these numbers and getting these wins and to advance to the next round. To push back on offense just a little bit, there's also ways you can manufacture offense, even if you're not a particularly good shooting team particularly if you're looking for a one-off upset in the opening round, if you're looking for a team to maybe 14, 15 seed to knock off a top team, then factors like offensive rebounding and making up for your misses or forcing turnovers or not turning the ball over yourself can definitely make a big difference in terms of upsets. H-Sack alum John Azikowicz puts together an upset model every year for the tournament and is published in the Wall Street Journal. And this year, he did exceptionally well. All five upsets that he predicted panned out. The teams that he projected, particularly Abilene Christian, he actually had them favored against Texas in the opening round just because they were exceptional at forcing turnovers. Number one in the country at over 19 turnovers forced per game. And they also take care of the ball very well. And in their game against Texas, you really saw that. Abilene Christian forced Texas to throw the ball away so many times. Even if Abilene Christian wasn't shooting the ball well, they constantly grabbed offensive rebounds, and that's how they ended up winning the game. When Joe Pleasant grabbed an offensive rebound, got fouled, and then was able to knock down the two big free throws at the end to give them the upset win. So even if 
a team doesn't have an elite offense. They can manufacture some offense through some defense, through offensive rebounding, and find a way to at least get a couple of wins early on in the tournament. I'm curious, do you think uh, the shortened season has led to maybe a change in strategy or like a bigger emphasis on defense? Or is that not really, are we seeing just the rise of defense becoming more important or at least like seemingly more important in these games? I would suggest it's not necessarily an increase in the importance of defense or offense. If anything, offense is probably becoming more important as teams shoot more threes and as teams become more specialized on offense. I think you could potentially see at least more of an impact on offense, especially at least at the professional basketball level. But I think it more goes back to what we were talking about before and trying to get a big upset win. Teams aren't necessarily built for certain types of defenses, whether it be Syracuse's 2-3 zone that seems to always give teams fits in the tournament or a swarming defense like Abilene Christian's. Um, It's really, really hard to prepare for that. And so in a one-off game, if you're able to force a lot of turnovers, you can get it in trouble and sneak out an upset win. We were talking about some of the difference between, you know, pro and college basketball. Danny mentioned things like rebounding, ways to create offense, you know, turnovers, things like that. In the NBA, that's not as common. You know, they're more refined. There's not as many turnovers. In the NBA, what's going to decide the game is your best players scoring how good they are at three-point shooting. It's very more predictive. Whereas in college basketball, there's a lot more you know, variance. So teams are a lot more scrappy. They don't make all the shots they take. It feels more gritty to me. And that kind of gets into the question, do you guys prefer NBA or college basketball? Kind of just a fun question I like to ask everyone. But for me, definitely, I prefer college basketball. NBA is more, it feels like a scrimmage sometimes. But in all these games in March Madness, every team is pouring their heart out on the court. It's messy. There's turnovers. There's bad shot decisions, you know, sloppy passes, things like that. And that's what makes it more interesting to me. I'm curious what you guys think. I don't know. I'm, I think I'm slowly becoming a convert into college sports. I have generally shied away from almost any college sport interest over professional interest, especially like football. I've always found um, the NFL just much more refined and um, engaging to watch and the way they're scoring is in terms of basketball, I've always gravitated towards the NBA, but I think this year, especially I've gotten a lot more invested. Perhaps it's the the gamification of it all. The March madness bracket, all the excitement around it has definitely been a big factor, but also I think just the pace of the games are so interesting. Obviously the stakes are very high when it's sudden death. And I think another thing I've enjoyed is watching all the fouling. I feel like I shouldn't be enjoying it. But for some reason, just the insane quantities of fouls in college basketball makes it incredibly interesting to watch. Um, And I think it's constantly, the ball's constantly turning over. And there's really just a lot of variables that you don't see as much in the NBA. Julie touched on it a little bit, but I think one thing that distinguishes college basketball from professional basketball is just the range of teams. Like we mentioned before, there are teams that are all out defense. There are teams that are all out offense. And so there's a lot more variance in terms of the tempo. Some teams go up and down, up and down, up and down. Other teams are like Virginia and sit down into their defense and take some time. Whereas in the NBA, there's certainly some variance between teams, but in general, most teams tend to play the same type of game. And so if you're interested in different types of strategies across teams, college basketball could potentially be more interesting. I found college basketball a really good learning tool. As someone who's definitely been more of a football-centric sports fan, I've definitely found college basketball a way for me to understand the strategy 
of basketball. And I think it'll be definitely hopefully translating into my understanding of professional basketball as well. But I think when you get to see so many different styles on a court in one weekend and you're watching so many games back to back, if you're as glued to the TV as I was, I think you're definitely going to learn a lot about strategy and how these teams are playing different kinds of defenses and coverage. And I think it's been definitely a really great way to see a sample of all the types of basketball you could watch in one place at one time. I think we all hit on it. College basketball has that surprising more, that kind of extra factor. And then that, that leads into the next question, kind of, of the two really big upsets of the first week. I'd say the two biggest were probably Oral Roberts, who is now the Cinderella of the tournament, number 15 overall seed, defeating Ohio State, a two seed, and Loyola Chicago, a number eight seed, defeating Illinois, number one seed. You know, you'll never see that in the NBA. You'll never see a one seed lose to an eight seed. But in college basketball, it happens. Now Oral Roberts went on to defeat Florida, a number seven seed in the second round, and is now the second 15 seed in the tournament to reach the Sweet 16, along with Florida Gulf Coast back in 2013. Oral Roberts will now face number three seed Arkansas, and Loyola Chicago will face number 12 seed Oregon State in the Sweet 16. Going back to the first two upsets, Oral Roberts versus Ohio State, Loyola Chicago versus Illinois, which one of these two was more surprising to you? I mean, I'd have to say Oral Roberts. That was something, a school I had barely followed, really not much I had known about them. Looking back now, in retrospect, you can see their record, and this team did start picking up towards the end of the season. You could see they started to get momentum. No one would have expected them to win their first match, let alone their second. So it's really incredibly impressive just to see how far they've come. I definitely didn't expect it. Loyola Chicago, I definitely think, had potential that maybe was overlooked because so many other stories like the Gonzaga story and so many other stories had just been coming up and focused on, but they did have an incredibly high ranking defense. And I think it was undervalued as a whole going into the season. And I think the fact that we overlooked that defense and its potential in the tournament was probably makes it a less surprising pick. Yeah, you're right, Julia. I have it here that Loyola Chicago, they were ranked number seven overall in Ken Palm, no country going to the tournament and they got an eighth seed. And their defense is number one in the country, according to Ken Palm, number one adjusted defense. I tend to agree as well. Loyola Chicago, while certainly a great story, we had seen their Cinderella run a couple of years ago when they made it all the way to the Final Four. And they brought back a couple of seniors from that Final Four run, led by Cameron Crutwig. One factor that really makes a difference in the tournament is having players with tournament experience already. While Illinois was certainly a great team, they didn't have as much experience. And so it's not incredibly mind-blowing that they might have been able to get the win over Illinois. As you mentioned, they were underseated and they had a lot of tournament experience. In the case of Oral Roberts, it's much more surprising. We don't see 15 seeds pull out the win over two seeds very often. All year long, we had had a bunch of Big Ten hype trying to look at Ohio State, Michigan, all these top teams in the Big Ten, and Ohio State ended up falling flat. And so Oral Roberts, not only winning their first game, but also knocking off Florida as well. I think it's pretty surprising that they have been able to make it this far. Yeah, I agree. I also would say Oral Roberts versus Ohio State, but I will you know, defend Oral Roberts a little bit. Um, even though they were ranked really low as a team, I think they were 135 in Ken Palm. Ohio State was number 11. They were the worst ranked two seed. Ohio State was 77th in defense, kind of showing what we were talking about earlier Having a balanced team, you know, they were really weak in defense. This kind of made them vulnerable for an upset. But Oral Roberts also had the highest score in the country, Max Abrams. He averaged 24 points per game. And in the game against Ohio State, he had 29 points. 
There was also a 538 article that I read about Oral Roberts and their their strategy of shooting a lot of threes in a game, which is kind of a high risk, high reward strategy. And like we were talking about, where it's just one game and you're, you know, if you're able to create that offense and make those threes, you can possibly get an upset. And we saw that happen. Unfortunately, I think it's the end of the road for Roberts. I think they're going to lose to Arkansas, but we'll see. You know, it'll be interesting to watch. Obviously, we talked about the Cinderella's, but what teams have impressed you so far in the tournament? I think the two polar opposites with the media darling and the Cinderella have both been relatively impressive to me so far. Gonzaga has really just done a great job. You see their full steam ahead. They're really just winning rounds and doing what they came here to do. And I think they're definitely living up to a lot of the hype that's been put at them. I think there was a lot of pressure on them just from all aspects of the sport to really succeed this season. And I think they've done really well with handling that pressure, especially in like this style of competition. I think pressure can really get to a team. And instead, I think they've really delivered and taken it as momentum and energy instead of an expectation. Also, Oral Roberts, I just have to put it out there. It's just incredibly impressive to make it not one round, but two rounds. I was just really impressed um, with what they were able to do there. One other team which has impressed me has been UCLA. They started off the year kind of slow, but as the year's gone on, they've really picked up steam come tourney time, knocking off Michigan State in the first four. And their top scorers have really picked up steam, even as their potentially best player has been out. Johnny Juzang is lighting the world on fire, and he's definitely done well. So I'm impressed with UCLA, and it should be a good game. They could very well upset Alabama in the next round. I love that, Danny. I love that you mentioned Johnny Juzang. He went to my high school and he was in my grade. I had the privilege of watching him play basketball. He's very talented. He actually went to Kentucky last year and then transferred to UCLA for this season. He's been you know, a star player for them and he's had a really good year. I'm glad he's had a, had a rebound and he's kind of had really good games in the tournament so far. So I love that UCLA pick, also being from LA. And also continue on the LA narrative. I'm also impressed with USC. In terms of when it comes to basketball, you know, in history, they're kind of, they play the second fiddle to UCLA. So it's also nice to see them doing well in the tournament and both these teams still in, and they're playing Oregon. So they have who they also beat earlier in the season. So they have a pretty good chance to advance to the elite eight. So I'm excited about both USC and UCLA. Do you have any upset? Well, I'm going to force you to pick an upset. So basically two upset predictions from each of you for either the sweet 16 or the elite eight. And then two like marquee matchups. So, you know, listeners of the podcast can know which games should I prioritize and and look to watch. As I mentioned before, I think one potential upset is UCLA against Alabama. I'm pretty sure 538 has this as their most likely upset, giving UCLA around 30% chance to knock off the Crimson Tide. And I think one thing that makes UCLA unique is just their range of scores. Not only do they have Johnny Juzang, but they've also got a bunch of other talented players on the squad who have put up significant numbers, even in their last game against Abilene Christian, which had had a suffocating defense. They still had quality players grabbing rebounds, being able to put points on the board. 67 is no bad feat against Abilene Christian's defense. In terms of other upsets, one other potential pick, Florida State over Michigan. As we've seen in the tournament already, Big Ten teams maybe have been a little bit overrated. And Florida State is not only one of the best three-point shooting teams, suggesting that maybe they could pull off the upset, but they're also very big. 
one of, if not the tallest teams in the tournament. And so that could suit them well in trying to shut down Hunter Dickinson and the Michigan Wolverines. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think Michigan has seen some slowing momentum towards the end of the season. And especially in this tournament, I think that Florida State really does have the potential. Um, They had a pretty good game last week. There's probably a lot of potential for them to take over Michigan in the next round. I also like UCLA's momentum as well. I think they have a really good shot. And the other one I might point out, maybe this one's a little bit controversial, but I do think Syracuse and Houston will be, if not an upset, a really interesting game to watch. I mean, Houston's doing very well right now, but I do think Syracuse shouldn't be counted out so early. My upset pick is actually going to be Alabama making it to the Final Four. So whether that's beating you know Michigan or Florida State, I think they are probably the strongest team in that section remaining. And I just looked it up like on 538. They have slightly the highest odds. And I you can I kind of simulate the matches along. So if Michigan does end up playing Alabama, Alabama has a 52% chance of winning. I mean, that's basically a toss-up. So I like to have Alabama coming out. That's my one upset. And then for the other upset, I would say I also like Loyola Chicago making it to the final four or Houston losing to either Syracuse or to Loyola Chicago in the next round. I think that, you know, Houston, Houston is rated actually really high. I'm going to just check right now on Ken. I think Ken Palm really likes Houston. Yeah. They're number four in the country, according to Ken Palm, seventh in offense, 11th in defense, but I don't know. It's just hard for me to trust those small conference schools. I'm being a little hypocritical, trusting Loyola Chicago and not trusting them, but eating my own words. But I, I think Loyola Chicago is going to come out of that section. And then I think an interesting game for this weekend, we talked about some of them, maybe it would be Baylor-Villanova. I think this is a pretty even matchup. It's kind of the old guard versus the new guard. Villanova has been one of like the best teams in college basketball for the last you know five plus years. Baylor's kind of a new, they've kind of broken out of the scene in the last couple of years. So kind of be interesting to watch Baylor versus Villanova, old versus new. And I think that'll be a really good game and definitely a very big test for Baylor. That's definitely the one I think I've been looking forward to. I think Villanova was the first team I ever watched in college basketball. So I am very excited to see them. I think both teams have had really high scoring games so far, and both seem to be in really good condition. I was a little nervous about Villanova going into the tournament, but they've really shown up. And I think that both teams, like again, old guard, new guard, I think it'll be a really fun game. It'll be a lot of really good basketball. I think it'll be less scrappy than what we've seen in a lot of tournaments. Maybe that's more or less fun for you. I'm not sure. But I definitely think it'll be a really great game, just fine form basketball. The other game I think will just be fun to watch, like it's always fun to watch, is Gonzaga and Creighton. Creighton's done much better than a lot of people have expected. I had them going to Sweet 16, so I was pretty excited about where they ended up. But I think the game's going to be a really fun one. Obviously, Gonzaga always puts up points. And if you're looking for just like a big action game, I think a lot of people are going to be anxious to see how they do. They're a lot of the majority of people's top picks. They're sort of number one overall. And so I think that'll be, a lot of people will be very invested in it. And I think Creighton will really try to rise to the challenge. I think this is the last segment of our podcast. If we were all chosen to pick a winner, we would probably mostly say Gonzaga. So this will make it a little more interesting. This will be a college basketball kind of draft of the winners. So basically to explain it to the listeners, we have 16 teams left and we're each going to get a chance to pick one of the 16 teams in kind of a draft-like order and we'll end up seeing who picked the champion. So I have a random number generator here and I'm going to assign each of us a number and generate the draft from there. Spinning it now. All right. So Danny is the first pick. I have the second. Sorry, Julia. 
So Danny, with the first overall pick in the March Madness Survivor Pool, who are you going to take? I think I'm going to go with Gonzaga. They were the best team in the country heading into the tournament. They've got a fairly easy path, knock on wood, for the next couple rounds compared to some of the other matchups that are still left. Florida State is probably a better opponent than Creighton is. In addition, their two seed has already been knocked out. Iowa is gone. That was potentially Gonzaga's biggest opponent heading into the tournament. Their three seed is out as well. Kansas has been eliminated. So potentially Gonzaga has a fairly easy route to at least the Final Four, if not farther. So in addition to being the best team during the regular season, they've got a fairly easy path. So I'll take them number one. That's a pretty sound pick. That's what I would have done. But I will take Baylor with the second pick. I'm not just going chalk here, but I also picked them in a majority of my brackets. So also hoping for that. I just looked up 538. They have a 21% chance of winning. That's second highest after Gonzaga 32. So I'm going to take Baylor with the second pick. Okay. So for the third pick, I think I will go with Alabama. I'm thinking if it's not going to be Gonzaga or Baylor, it's probably going to come from the East. And I think Alabama really has a good shot. If they can pass UCLA, I think their path is pretty clear. I don't think Michigan would win against Alabama if we put them in a matchup. I think if Gonzaga were to not make the final four, Alabama has a really good shot. And now you get to pick again because we're going flipped. Again, lucky me. I would say my next pick might be probably Villanova. I think, again, um, in sort of looking at the matchups, if they're able to take down Baylor, I think whoever gets put up between Loyola and Houston, I think that they'd have a really good shot after facing such strong opponents if I think Villanova could be Arkansas and I think they are an established team. And so I really think they can make it far. So, I mean, there's still a one seed left on the board in Michigan. I'm, I'm going to take Michigan. I think they're the second favorite team to come out of that region and they do have a tough schedule. I'm looking at 538 right now and kind of their chance of winning the tournament is 5%. But then if they get through Florida state, it goes up to about 10%. So it's kind of a lot of that is hinging on that game and Hopefully, I think they're able to win. They've performed pretty well in the tournament so far. I think Michigan, people might be too much like discounting how good they are. So I'm going to take Michigan with the second pick. Next up, I'll grab Houston. As we mentioned before, they were one of the top teams entering the tournament. As good as Syracuse is, Houston has an 8 seed, an 11 seed, and a 12 seed left in the region. Again, trying to look at their path, it's fairly easy. There's no super talented team, no top seed left in their way. So at least until the final four, Houston is looking pretty good. And even in the final four, they would have to potentially face Baylor, who while certainly talented, is probably not as strong as Gonzaga in terms of number one seeds. So I think Houston of the teams left is probably the best on the board. And then for my second pick, I'll probably go with USC. While Gonzaga is certainly talented, I'm really impressed with the Mobley brothers. USC is outstanding on the glass. In their last game against Kansas, they really showed that they could shoot the three as well. And should something crazy happen and Gonzaga goes down, as we've mentioned, the East is potentially the weakest region. And so USC, should they beat Oregon where they're favored? And should Gonzaga go down, USC would probably have the easiest path to the championship game in their final four matchup. 
actually did see the Mobley brothers get to play in person against uh, from a SoCal high school. They're very, very good. Johnny was also there. So lots of, lots of basketball stars. I would say living in LA, you must have the most interesting high school basketball experience in the country. Oh yeah. There's lots of stories there. I mean, but, but yeah, I mean, Johnny Juzang, I don't know if you know, Cassius Stanley was in the dunk contest this year. He went to my school, then transferred to Sierra Canyon, which is another basketball powerhouse. We played them last year. LeBron James' son is on that team, and LeBron James was at that game. What I was there. LeBron was there. Drake was there. Yeah. So there's lots of fun, lots of fun stories with our high school basketball team. But yeah. So now with my pick, I'm going to take. I'm deciding between Arkansas and Loyola Chicago, but I'm going to take Arkansas. My roommate is from Little Rock, and he's a big, big Arkansas fan. I hear all the games, and I and I watch them with him. I really like Arkansas. They've had some close games, but they've kind of been tested. So that's kind of a, a good sign. They've also got this really good freshman. Uh, yeah, Moses Moody. He's a freshman, and he was the SEC freshman of the year. He's going to be probably a top 10 pick. He's really, really good. So I'll take Arkansas. Okay. Then I think for my pick to match you, I think I'm going to take Loyola Chicago. Just their defense is just really awesome to watch. I'm excited about them. I feel like they have energy. I feel like everyone should be excited about them. They're sort of the little engine that could, and I'm rooting for them. No, I'm just really excited about them. And I do think if none of the other teams above are going to be there, they're definitely, they're still in it. I wouldn't cut them out. All right. Thank you for leaving UCLA. I will take UCLA and Johnny. And yeah, I'll reach for that one, but I like UCLA. That's a fan pick. Hold up for a second. Oh, did I skip? Yeah, I skipped. Rude. Oh, yeah, yeah. You only went one skip. My bad. Thanks, David. Um, I have to break your heart a little bit, and I think I have to take UCLA. I'm sorry, David. I, I, really, have to, I really have to take him. I know your classmates in it, but alas, I do think they have a really good shot. Um. If they can take their next matchup, I wouldn't count them out for making it to the final four. But Michigan might be tough, but I, I, I still think they could do it if they win the next one. But the big, next one's going to be their biggest challenge, I think. Yeah. I got to rethink my pick. Let's see. Okay. I will take Florida State. Basically, about 38. Michigan has 53% chance. Florida State has 47. So that's a, pretty much a toss-up. So I'll, I'll take Florida State with the next pick. So to go next, I think I'll go with Syracuse. I've been really impressed with their hot shooting to start off the tournament. Buddy Beheim has been quite impressive, knocking down threes. Even when he was cold at the beginning of the game, he turned right on and got hot later on. Not only does Syracuse potentially obviously have a talented team, great coaching as well, but their 2-3 zone, really hard to defeat, especially in a one-off game. And while Houston will have a little bit more time to prep for Syracuse with the gap between weekends, should Syracuse knock off Houston again with potentially Loyola or Oregon State in the next round, Syracuse could have an easier path, at least compared to potentially playing a top seed like Gonzaga or Baylor. Next up, I'll take Oregon of the teams left. I think they're probably the best one on the board. As good as USC is, they're at least not as good as Gonzaga and potentially Loyola Chicago or at least Houston is probably better than USC. So Oregon, not only do they at least have a a decent path to winning the next game, but they're also probably the best team on the board. Their offense is lights out. As we saw against Iowa, they put up 95 points. They can shoot the ball really well. 
they have the potential for an upset and could go on a long run, which I don't necessarily see as good as Oregon State and Creighton and Oral Roberts have been. It's tough to sustain that momentum for so long and pull off a big upset. Yeah, I'm going to go stay within the same state. I'm going to choose Oregon State, even though Creighton is a five seed. And I've just looked at Ken Palm. Creighton is number 19 overall in the country. Oregon State is 50. So I'm kind of going against the analytics on this one, but they might have maybe an easier road to it. You know, Oregon has to go through USC and then potentially Gonzaga. So I'm mainly picking them being hot at the moment. They've done well. They won the Pac-12 tournament and having a potentially easier path. So I'll take Oregon State. Yeah, I'll take Creighton. I've been actually very invested in Creighton from the start of this tournament. They were, but um, I think their road must come to an end this week. But if it doesn't come to an end this week, I think they're gonna have they're gonna be really hot. And I think if they can pass through Gonzaga, their path on the left side of this bracket is pretty nice. I think if they can pass through Gonzaga, that's really just a great test of um, the team's ability to prepare for a team because they do have this week. So I think. They could go far if they do pass Gonzaga. But then again, I think they're the biggest gatekeepers. So we shall see. And that wraps up our draft. The lonely Oral Roberts did not get picked. But, you know, that's fair. There will be the people's team. So this is everybody's Cinderella. Everybody wants Oral Roberts to win. We all can pick Oral Roberts. They've been doubted all tournament. And so the fact that they're being doubted now, they'll just prove us all wrong again. They thrive on doubt. It's what they, it's what they eat for breakfast. They would be making history if they, the first uh, 15 seed to advance to the Elite Eight, if, if they won. But yeah, well, I think that should wrap up our episode on the first weekend of Arch Madness. We did a pretty thorough deep dive talking about brackets, bracket strategy, blue bloods, newcomers, the state of analytics in college basketball, and our predictions for the rest of the tournament. Again, Thanks to Danny and Julia for joining me today. You can find Danny's March Madness articles along with all of his others on our website at harvardsportsanalysis.org. If you have any questions or would like to get in contact, please check out our website or follow us on Twitter at Harvard underscore sports. Hope you enjoyed this episode on March Madness and we'll be back soon. Enjoy the games this weekend.